dogs only eat prescriptions for Vicodin. Justice prevailed. The greatest lie is... No, don't say it, please. We're please. from the federal government and we're here to help. It really drives me nuts. We don't need no stinking policies. <laughs>
actions to benefit a patient. This is a story of a five-year-old with a fracture who presents to an emergency department. They really aren't in a position to handle this particular kind of case. The fracture was splinted. The patient was given a shot of morphine for the pain and sent by car to an ED with a pediatric orthopedist who could fix the problem. On the transfer form, the sending doctor indicated the patient was stable. If so, I would think this is no longer an MTALA transfer. Yeah, that's one of the recurring points that Bob Bitterman, our MTALA expert, makes, that a stable patient is not an MTALA transfer. And under those circumstances, the receiving hospital can refuse you. Uh, the receiving hospital can basically say, I'm not taking them until you do a CAT scan of the entire body. Hold on, great sage of doctors. There's more to this story. Mother and child waited a long time to see this fancy uh, pediatric orthopedist, and she ultimately complained, and somehow this caused an investigation as a potential MTALA investigation. This was in California. This is a California case. And there, the preliminary investigation is performed by the Department of Public Health, as it is in most states. Uh, They then forward their findings on to the regional federal office. As anticipated, the sending hospitals' procedures were included in the investigation. That is, they look and see what you're doing. The representatives of the State Department of Health, State of California, told hospital administrator and the hospital's attorney they were going uh, to forward the case to the feds because the child was sent by private car. Rick, most people who come to emergency departments come by private car. An ambulance is for people who need Rapid transport who have unstable conditions. And who need to have a paper sheet over them and oxygen. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and an IV running for no good reason. And a monitor. The hospital attorneys spoke with the feds, and the matter was closed. Okay, we'd like to think that's the event. No, but not after the jerk submitted a bill for almost 100000 bucks to the hospital and all the hospital had to do was contact, and they could have just contacted Bob Bitterman, and he could have handled this case for half that, I'm sure. <laughs> Bob, I, I don't know what your rate structure is, but... Uh, Even I, if it was 50000 would 50, have done a favor. Yeah, my God. Why in the world would we be going through the State Department of Health, going to the feds, doing this and that over something which was is- absolutely a normal, reasonable thing to do. This is ridiculous uh, from a couple points of view. First of all, uh, I guess there's a matter of opinion about whether a kid in a splint who got a shot of morphine should be sent by ambulance or not. But there is no matter of opinion whether uh, Mtala mandates an ambulance transfer. It does not mandate an ambulance transfer. This is in the decision of the sending physician and um that has been repeated we repeated it in may we're repeating it again so uh wait it does get worse yes yes so the hospital chain got hit up for this uh hundred thousand dollars by this jerky lawyer and um this is a large nonprofit system in california and they have mandated now that all transfers be done by ambulance 
henceforth, which is a disaster. Do you know what they charge? I tried to look up the ambulance ambulance rates because they're set by the state of California, and it, and they were so obtuse I couldn't figure it out. But the fact of the matter is, is ambulance transfers are a fortune, and they don't have a good sense of humor in terms of adjusting bills when people complain. No, we could actually see people bankrupted depending on what their insurance is, by something which could have been handled. They could have gone by taxi cab. They could have gone by limo. They could have gone by dog sled, depending on the state. But why in the world would this hospital system now say everybody has to go by ambulance? I think this is just insanity. Well, the other thing about that is, what if the patient says, I cannot afford an ambulance, I have no money? Is the hospital going to pay for the ambulance? Well, that's a good question because there are people who can very easily say straight out, we're a young working couple. We don't have insurance at this point in time. I don't need What are you going to do to minimize my expenses on this issue? And then this stupid thing is they're going to say, I'm sorry, it's our hospital policy that we send you by ambulance. So this really compounds the problem and, and makes the, me, uh, the venial sin a mortal sin because it's going to affect all of these people unnecessarily. I, I There's another po- problem, Rick, and that is I think the inspectors from the state of California should have known and been up to date on the fact that this is a physician decision. It is a stable patient. Uh, that decision... Whether it's right or wrong is the physician's decision and does not truly fall under Intala. And it didn't seem to me that the state inspectors understood that fact. I think you've got a a bureaucrat here who's totally unaware of the intent of the law and the legislation. And I think that's really bad. One of the things that uh, was noted by the doctor who sent us this case is that they had an excellent transfer form. And this form had on it a box to check whether a patient was stable or unstable. And the doctor checked the stable box. He says that this form came from Todd Taylor. And I contacted Todd. And Todd actually said he would be happy to talk to people. Not He doesn't necessarily need to talk to them. He'll email you. But he was more than generous with giving out his forms. So... When you look at the notes for this this month's risk management monthly, thank, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Yes, I, I'll give you Todd's email address now. Todd, I'm telling you right now, you said it was okay. So if 500 people ask you for your form, what can I tell you? Yeah, what can I say? Uh, oh, by the way, we're sitting in New York, home of Mayor Bloomberg and the 16 ounce Coke and the 16 ounce Coke. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg, I think he's a very smart guy. I think he's a wonderful man. Unfortunately, he wants to also be my mother. I I had a mother. She was wonderful. I don't need the mayor to do that. And here's something which is not a good thing. As you were aware, <laughs> aware Rick, uh, the city of New York hospitals have decided they are personally going to fight prescription drug abuse. That means... You cannot give a patient more than three days worth of pain medicine in the city of New York. Now that no, does in those hospitals. In those hospitals, but that's that's uh, twelve hospitals, and I think 
that what that does is force these patients more over to the hoity-toity hospitals well, honest, where they can do it. Honest to goodness, I have no idea why anybody would tolerate the indignities of a municipal hospital when you can go to one of the hoity-toities. Like in Los Angeles, you could wait an ungodly a number of hours at the county hospitals when, in fact, you could go over to Cedars-Sinai Medical Center the Hospital of the Stars or St. John's Hospital where Elizabeth Taylor used to go, you know, twice a week uh, for her care. They have all of these big deal hospitals. UCLA, beautiful hospital, beautiful. Charges an arm and a leg, but a beautiful hospital. Why would you go to and sit with all the unwashed masses in these emergency departments for all of these hours, but that's an aside. Well, more than that, I'm actually one of those unwashed masses, so be very careful now. I, I, I mean, uh, sometimes we like to hang out with our with our bros, and it's okay. I don't care why they go. What I dislike is physicians have now been told three things. No long-acting opiates of any kind, no more than a three-day script, and no refilling, quote-unquote, lost opiate prescriptions. It's dog-aided. Well, we've talked on this show before that dogs only eat prescriptions for Vicodin. I've ne- have you ever known a dog to eat an amoxicillin prescription? Never. Uh, Never. They choke on them. <laughs> yes, they do. This is very strange. Uh, what I would say is, Mayor Bloomberg, rethink this, because at most of the city hospitals, these are not people who can get in to see a doctor in three days. If you have a broken arm, maybe you need five days. Maybe you need seven days. You know, not everybody is a druggie. There are some people who deserve pain relief. And I just, I just think they're now taking away my ability to practice medicine, and I don't like it. Well, clearly there were some doctors who were really kind of burned out and pissed off about the frequency with which they were being hit up for drugs. And I acknowledge that that is a problem. It, honestly, it wasn't a problem in the ER that I worked in, in the community I worked in. But that doesn't mean I can't be sympathetic to doctors who have to deal with this on a much more frequent basis. And you can imagine how discouraging it would be and and anger-producing and you name it kind of thing. So, you know, I I have sympathy for the physicians who are in this situation. I don't have sympathy for the solution. I don't have sympathy for, I'm sorry, we're not allowed. What a chicken <laughs> crap sort of thing yes. way to, to deal with a problem like that. I, I can't do it. They won't let me. Oh, you poor soul. You're the doctor for crying out loud. You make the decision who needs what. But don't hide behind your Mayor Bloomberg's skirt over this thing. You. <laughs> no, I'm going to stop <laughs> All right, right there. Get Thank control, you. Rick. I'm okay. Losing, I'm losing it here. Rick, go on. What do we got here? Well, here's the latest thing. Hospitals now think, oh, this is terrific. So it's it's expanding beyond the municipal hospitals of New York. They think, hey, we can adopt a policy like this. We don't need a regulation on the part of the state to do this. We'll make it ourselves. We don't need no stinking policies. <laughs> we can do this ourselves. So right. here you go. And now hospitals are starting to make signs that they're putting in their waiting room saying, you should know 
that we're not refilling any prescription that for a narcotic that your dog ate. You should know that we're only able to give you know an, uh, narcotics for X days. You should know. And this is terrific, absolutely terrific. It is right on. First of all, that sign should not be there. Number two, you are breaking Emtala because, and you all should know this, you're not allowed to do anything to discourage a patient to be seen at your hospital asking for any kind of money, deposit, work on insurance, until a medical screening examination has been done. So CMS wrote a letter to the South Carolina Hospital Association advising that uh, it that hospitals displaying such a sign would likely undo uh, that these signs unduly coerce patients with legitimate medical needs to leave the ED before receiving an appropriate medical screening exam. Therefore, CMS considers such signs as potentially contributing, constituting EMTALA violations. Potentially, come on, this is, this is they're, they're, they're downplaying it. You're not allowed to discourage patients from being seen and getting a medical screening exam, period. Yeah, this is this has gotten a little out of control. I mean, where does common sense come into this? You and I have all uh, we've we've seen people. We've uh, renewed some pain medicine for a short period of time, things like that. You know what? Let that be a doctor decision and not this sort of blanket policy. I mean, we're supposed to take care of people, and that's not what this is. All right, let's go. Let's go to the mailbag here for a second. The email bag. Uh, email bag. It's we, a virtual it, bag. Yeah, it's a virtual <laughs> bag. Uh, but those are my favorite kind, by the way. Uh, the email from one of our new listeners, that's Eva Briggs, uh, and she gave us permission to use her name. She said that the first issue she listened to dealt with two situations covered in that issue. Uh, the idea of rendering care outside the department, i.e. the hospital wanted the EPs, emergency physicians to be available for potential emergencies resulting from the injection of contrast for patients having outpatient procedures. Uh, by the way, where are the radiologists in all this, Rick? Except I have it, no idea. They're in some third world country. <laughs> they must be. And, and I thought it was interesting that uh, they wanted them to take on responsibility without remuneration. They're going to be available to cover the house on all uh, problems. And I think that that's just strange. It's unbelievable. Well, we've given the answer to this over and over and over again. That's why Eva's a new listener and hasn't heard the answer. Yeah. Or maybe she did. Well, the idea of patients making appointments for care in their urgent care center and maybe in their ERs. Uh, Dr. Bitterman uh, properly warned that that there, there are rules here. If the ED is handling one group of patients differently than another group of patients, isn't that uh, selective uh, treatment of these folks? And doesn't that constitute a violation of EMTALA? Yeah, she had two points. The first one was about this um, rendering care outside of the department for what sounded to be like totally elected cases. Right. That was one right, thing. Right. The second thing was this um, EMTALA business about you know, these companies that make you an appointment to get seen and so you don't have to come in until your appointment is called kind of thing, which is sounds, frankly, pretty absurd to me, although there are hospitals that are doing this. Well, what she said is, though, 
that that uh, she has observed that a lot of the patients are uh, annoyed who've been waiting a long time, and then someone waltzes into the department and is seen before them. Uh, you know, we Jeez, I can't understand that. Yeah, we would be offended by that. We've spent forty years, at least my experience with this has been. Uh, we've been spending time telling people right to their face, we don't take people just in order. We do it on severity. And so we may take people out of line, but we do it because of medical condition. Or if you pay 15 bucks for an appointment. Or if you pay 15 <laughs> bucks for an appointment. And, uh, well, you, you know, know it's she didn't very like them waltzing in, so I would suggest that they polka in tango <laughs> they right. could tango in it's be good uh if they paid for this rapid appointment uh and as she's pointing out it makes for some unhappy people who uh who watch this i uh, and i think that there really is uh as dr bitterman would uh, indicate a potential mtala violation there and we ought to pay some attention you got it next email robert sevier and I have permission to use his name as well. Very you know, good. one of the things that would be really, really helpful, guys, uh, we we're very much appreciate your emails. We look forward to your emails. Why don't you just, when you do your email, say if it's okay to use your name or not. Right, that we'd would, like that. That would save me doing all these back and forth and et cetera, et cetera, because I don't have a secretary to do this. You're getting a personal email from me to ask if you can use your name. Right. Anyway, he's... Hospital stopped doing OB, as a lot have. And he's concerned about the Mtala aspects of dealing with a pregnant woman who's in labor. So Dr. Bitterman comes to the rescue. First of all, he notes that there is a good chapter of the, about this in the ASEP Mtala book, of which Dr. Bitterman was one of the, one of the authors. authors yep. yes. And the bottom line, he says, this can be a tough issue. Since Imtalic has started regarding the issue of transferring women in labor. This is the Patrick case from Texas. Correct. Uh, let me distill down what I think Dr. Bitterman's advice is. Now, Dr. Bitterman, as you know, is a physician, but he's also an attorney. And he chooses his words carefully. And obviously, I do not. Yes. So, so, <laughs> so we've all is, noted, Rick. This yes. is my version of Dr. Bitterman. First of all, he said, have him equipment in the ED to deliver a baby and make sure staff and physicians know how to use it and how to assist in the delivery of a child. Sounds reasonable. Yeah. Number two, he advises actively informing the community and EMS that you don't do OB. Preventing arrivals of the pregnant woman in, the lab in labor is the best way to limit OB problems. That's right. Don't do it. If yeah, you, you're, if still, you're still going to come there because they're all thinking they're going to deliver in any in a nanosecond, and they're they're still going to be there. But yes. you know this this is a sign of good faith that I uh, you're doing this. Number three, he says, know where and how to transfer these patients expeditiously, and to consider sending someone along with the transfer. Who that would be is un unclear, but um, let's let's maybe point out something. Nurse or something like that. Very important here, Rick, and that is in the initial case, in the Bellwether case, which was uh, Patrick uh, in Texas. Uh, that o that hospital did OB, and the OB on call refused to come in. He said he had no obligation to come in. 
But the clear differentiation here is that is a hospital which had an OB program. If you don't have an OB program, you can't be expected to do high-level OB. Now, all of us have caught kids in our career. Uh, I did a lot of that uh, at uh, Bayer Hospital in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I caught lots of kids. But the bottom line here is if you don't do OB, I can't think of anything more frightening than to be there and find a pair of legs coming out first and then then you're in trouble. Well, we've talked about what is a stable transfer and what is an unstable transfer. By definition, a woman in labor is an unstable transfer. Correct. Because because the feds have defined it as so. The fact of the matter is is that a average first labor is in excess of 20 hours. So if somebody comes in and labor it's been 4 hours and it's their first kid, they got they get they have lots of hours to go kind of thing and your hospital transferred hospital is is a half hour away so you might technically consider that patient stable for transfer and Tala says until the baby and placenta are delivered they are not stable for transfer but obviously that's quite artificial so bob says there are still risks that you can get into Amtala trouble document thoroughly your rationale for the transfer if you are going to do one Basically, it's a higher level of care in this situation. Um, and anticipate that the patient will not deliver in route. Honestly, you, you really don't want that baby to deliver in route. Uh, not I think, if you can avoid it. No. And so, it, obviously, it takes into consideration where the mother is. In, you know, if she's had 15 kids before, that's an issue. If the hospital where you're sending them is an hour away, that's an issue. You have to put the, all of this into com- your computer and say, no, we're going to keep her right here because, to tell you the truth, it's safer to deliver here than possibly deliver in that ambulance. Um, he also says, explain to the patient your reasons for transferring or not transferring and try and get the patient's agreement. However, do not discuss with the patient the Amtala transfer issues or requirements. I think that's absolutely correct. No patient can understand that discussion, is not prepped for that discussion. And really, it ought to be based upon what you think is... here. Where did we lose sight on this? We want to do what's best for that mother and that child. And so if we, if we have to deliver them there, we do it. But, uh, you know, we still examine. Now they're partially effaced, uh, you know... Contractions are a long way apart. You know what? They can make the 20 minutes. On a bicycle. <laughs> they, they could, but we're not sending them by bicycle. Okay, Rick? Private car was, was, was yeah. bad enough in the last case. We're not sending them by bicycle. Have you ever seen what happens to a private car when they deliver in the backseat? Yes, I have. You yes, might I... as well just, just junk that junk car. Junk that baby. That's right. This, this, put it into that crusher thing. That the car is worthless now. Yeah, at this point, it's no good. All right. Next, we have, a, um, we have someone who's written to us, and we'll just refer to him as John. Hello, John. Uh, so assume he said back, hello. And, and what he says is his new administrator, uh, you know, a lot of hospitals change administrators more than some of our patients you know, change their socks. Uh, they want to include two new sections in his employment agreement. Remember what I said. This isn't a group contract. This is an individual physician who's a an employee in his employment agreement. So Sounds for, like he's an employee of the hospital. He's an employee of the hospital. And now, what I, 
unfortunately, uh, I don't know, John, did uh, did you listen to the last month, or no, the month before last when we had the, virtually the entire thing about employment agreements? Yeah, right. I, I don't know whether he did or not, but <laughs> uh, that upon, t- he, they want to include this paragraph, that upon termination, it is up to the individual or uh, entity to determine if remarks made by the departing physician are derogatory. They don't want you bad-mouthing the hospital, administrators, anybody else, and that includes talking to any doctors who they're looking at to hire. Well, you know, that sounds perfectly reasonable to me, doesn't it? Well, wait a second. What do you do when some doctor comes in, says, I want to speak to the other doctors before I accept this job? Does that mean you cannot carry on an honest discussion? Derogatory is in, some, is in the mind of someone who's determined it, it's derogatory. I see it. Hmm? I know it when I see it. Yes, it's like <laughs> pornography. You know, I can't define it, but I'll know it when I see it. Right. And, 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 and we're looking hard. All I can say is, John, uh, if you're going to have a, a clause, and I understand you have a fiduciary responsibility to the hospital to protect it, to defend it, that sort of thing. But derogatory has to be determined by someone, and it cannot be the hospital. Have an independent third party decide whether you have done something which is uh, malicious uh, to the to the, and poison the well in this relationship on your way out the door. You need to protect yourself from this kind of abuse. Um, be careful that this does not become a standard way of doing business. Otherwise, how would you carry on a reasonable conversation? with a physician seeking employment at your hospital. I think this is, uh, this is deadly. Second point, they have asked for an indemnification clause stipulating that any acts found to be, quote-unquote, grossly negligent relating to the performance of the duties of the physician would have to result in the hospital being unindemnif- uh, indemnified for any and all costs. That means... Let's define this, that a, an employee of the hospital would have to pay back the hospital if their insurance policy, their the, insurance carrier. The hospital's. The hospital's policy says that you are grossly negligent. Now, in whose eyes is grossly negligent? Again, is it the hospital's sole discretion? Is it the insurance carrier's sole discretion? Uh, I want to know who's saying that, and the best defense for the physician would be, if if this has to be included, that gross negligence be determined by uh, a a subcommittee of of the uh, medical staff. Because just because you lose a malpractice case and the hospital pays some money, in no way, in absolutely no way, indicates that you were grossly negligent. And I think you've got to remember, you can threaten an individual doctor's um, personal finances with this, Rick. This this is not uh, oh, this is not be very nasty. This would be very nasty. They want you to pay for their lawyers' expenses, even if there is everybody's acquitted. Exactly, and I think that you have to be very careful how they use the term grossly negligent. Uh, the administrator, by the way, says that these are standard clauses. Yeah, I don't know about that. Well, 
you know, Rick, in anticipation of this discussion, I went to an attorney who's actually been on this program. Uh, and she pointed out to me that these sorts of indemnifications for hospitals are becoming more and more common. Now, I don't think it's the standard at this point in time, but as she says, they they don't want no junk anymore. And if you've done something grossly negligent, and she uses the example, let's say the doctor came in uh, uh, intoxicated. Let's say the doctor came in and was going out to his car to snort Coke uh, every, every hour or two all these other sorts of things. She says gross negligence at least ought to be defined in some way what they are not going to tolerate. But she says, you know, let me put my two cents worth here. Uh, uh, If you guys think that this is not going to progress as there becomes less money in health care, she said you're wrong. Hospitals uh, are, are looking for cash, and the last thing they want to do is have to pay this stuff out of their pocket. The other thing is uh, I had suggested that a labor lawyer be consulted to see whether, first of all, these clauses are legal in the state and whether the wording of these clauses uh, are fair uh, for both parties and they're not unilateral. And as you you suggested, um, the hospital gets to determine what uh, is considered derogatory. The hospital gets to determine what's considered to be gross negligence. Yep. And understand this. When you're in the employee role, there's a concept in law called uh, respondent superior. Let the master answer. When you are the employee of the corporation, the employee of the hospital, it is the hospital which has been dumb enough to hire you as the doctor. They have to take on a certain responsibility for that. This, this is not really just gross negligence. What we're talking about here is if you're guilty, guilty of something they call willful and wanton. That means you've really done something bad here. And, and there ought to be some way of defining that. I think these, these uh, two clauses are way too loose. They're not specific as to how it's going to be administered. Yes, although we have, we may have gotten a truncated version of this, because I don't think any lawyer worth his salt would write something so uh, cryptic. Rick, Rick, as you are well aware, lawyers will write whatever they can get away with. And- well, that's the other thing. Honestly, is um, if you want a job at a hospital, and it's in a area that you think is good and you'd like to raise your kids there yeah you'll you'll just about sign anything uh as an employee uh, employee contract yeah well it, obviously it, you know the old uh, roman phrase about you know one buyer no buyer sort of thing if you're in that position where you have to live in this cute town and your wife loves the place and there's one hospital you know, you don't have a lot of choices. No. And and you just need to deal with that up front. Okay, Rick, what's up? Uh, Ray Zell. Ray Hi. sends us questions every uh, month or so. Yeah. This one is uh, an interesting case. Ray had a patient who was under the influence of drugs and alcohol who fell and broke her clavicle. After treatment, he was concerned about sending her home. He noted that she had no ride and no one to pick her up and couldn't afford a cab, and the hospital doesn't provide cab vouchers. 
The administration was afraid that she could pass out in the cab or have other negative consequences. Ray wants to know if they should have called the sheriff to take her home. And um, I think it's so straightforward here. Yep. My two cents, the administration's concerns were right on. Number two, do not draw blood alcohol or toxicology panel. We've gone through the reasons for that in the past. In essence, if you draw a blood alcohol now, you can determine what it will be three hours from now. And we don't want that used against you. You, We want your clinical judgment to assess whether this person is capable of leaving with or without assistance. Yep. Do not call the sheriff to take her home, for crying out loud. The only reasonable alternative, Ray, you got to keep her in the department until her... She's not intoxicated. She has a chemical organic brain syndrome. That's what the, will be talked about in court when you send this lady home and she trips on a speed bump and knocks herself out. Right. Chemical organic brain syndrome. It has to clear to the point where you are comfortable that upon your serial clinical exams, she is safe to leave the building. No ataxia, speech clear and appropriate, no suicidal thoughts. She can't go home by sheriff. She has to go home when she is mentally capable of taking care of herself. The other thing is, the sheriff does not want to be in the business of taking someone who's intoxicated home if there's nobody there to take care of this person. I, I can't envision the sheriff uh, agreeing to do that. Not not when she cannot take care of herself when they let her out of the, the car. Uh, by the way, I think that sheriff's departments in general don't want to be in this business. No. Because they have a liability here as well. Well, they're, I think they're more sensitive to, to it than we are. Yes, exactly. The last last thing they want to do is be responsible for releasing somebody who is not stable mentally at that moment in time out to try and take care of herself. You know, I do think that hospitals should have cab voucher policies. I mean, what are you going to do uh, with this woman who has no money and now she's perfectly lucid and nobody has nobody to pick her up? I would roll her in a wheelchair to the uh, CEO's doorway and have her sit there and let them figure out that they need to come up with a cab voucher policy. Yeah, of course, yeah. you won't be working there at that hospital much longer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you won't need to worry about yeah. that. Uh, Can we get her policy. a key to the executive <laughs> washroom there, right. too, in the administrative wing? You know, I must admit, and I have done this, I have forked over personal money to get people out of the department. Here's 20 bucks to the cab driver. She's ready to go home. Didn't you buy somebody a bus ticket to Las Vegas one once? Way. One way. One way. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. that's not right. Um, next, we have an email from uh, one of our regular uh, listeners, uh, Brian Romeus. He notes that our conversations about the extensive use of macros, cuts and pasting, and other people's charting and checking off the great uh, the great box lie is the best thing. All other systems reviewed and found to be negative. He, yeah, right. Yeah, he he re, he understands that that's the greatest lie in America, uh, it, or it, no, it's not the greatest lie. The greatest lie is no. Don't say it, please. please. We're from the federal government and we're here to help. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you're going to give me another one? I, I'm not going to give do you that, that one. one. And its potential its potential result in fraudulent billing goes against all the conventional wisdom regarding thorough charting as a way to limit risks and suits. I hope we weren't misunderstood here, Rick. We think if you do things, you should write it down. But you're but some of these macros 
are unbelievable. You didn't do all those things. You need to get your macros down to what is actually done. We believe that great charting should follow great examination. But if you're in there with a cut finger and it says you've done a pelvic exam, I kind of I want to know why that is. I, I pointed out today in one of our meetings that I'd received five emails about going to seminars on how to expand and maximize your billing. You know, at a certain point in time, there's an ethical question here about this. You should not be expanding your billing if you didn't do it. And quite frankly, even if you do do it and the patient didn't need it, then you're just another kind of crook. So here you go. There is an absolutely, absolutely fabulous article. Yep. Written by somebody I know very well. Me. Yeah. In the next <laughs> issue of EP Monthly. Actually, it's in the July issue of EP Monthly. And it's it's basically about the slippery slope of EMRs facilitating fraudulent billing. And uh, there's some very specific examples in there. There's all sorts of stuff in there about the inspector general, general is on to this stuff. And these clippings and, and macros and all of these charts being identical. And some of this, the, the statistics that the government has about how um, level fives have skyrocketed since the installation of EMRs has occurred at certain hospitals. Skyrocketed. Yep. But uh, it, I'm sure it's just because these patients are sicker now. Yes. Well, <laughs> that the that's... EMR made me sick, made me want to vomit. <laughs> So maybe the patients are sicker because you know the 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 administrators to that respond. The patients are sicker, or we were under documenting in the past. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, Brian. No, mm -hmm. wait a minute. He on on the other hand, he says his charts are very well documented with plenty of pertinent negatives, and an exam that truly reflects what he's asked and done in order to indicate that he is considered an appropriate differential. So he's basically saying, you guys say, don't write these mega charts. And what we're really saying is, don't lie. Don't lie, exactly. If you really do all that stuff, that's terrific. And the coder basically cannot make a level five out of an ankle sprain. They just cannot do it. You can put everything you want down there. But they cannot do it, and that's fine. You can waste all the time you want. All right. Put your two cents worth on this one, too, Rick. Uh, from a mathematical point of view, charting, except for billing purposes, quality assurance activities, and the opportunity to tell the follow-up doctor what you thought was the diagnosis and what you did, that's all they're interested in. Charting is otherwise a total waste of time, yeah. mathematically. ED lawsuits, one in 20,000, one in 30,000. And honest to goodness, that is old data. I'm willing to bet that the lawsuits are less that, uh, frequent than, than even this. And I'm also willing to bet that when we we win the vast majority of the suits, we 85 win 85%. At least. Yeah. So, um, um, so that's my view that the lawsuits are going down. And there is this position that says, no, I didn't write it. But here's what I usually do. Now, Gregory, you defend a lot of doctors. Yes, I do, sir. And how does that, here's what I usually do, stand up? It stands up very well. You damn right it does. Because it is my usual and customary action. 
you know, to say, well, Dr. Henry, do you, are you sure that on Mrs. Smith five years ago, you actually checked her gait? And what I'd have to say is, I haven't seen a patient with, uh, w- who presents with weakness who I haven't tried to check their gait in my entire career. I mean, I either have to try and walk them or I don't. But why would I have not done it correctly on this one case, counselor? And, you know, juries understand that. They understand that perfectly. You know, because <laughs> I always love the guy who says, oh, I remember this patient very well. Yeah, five years later, I can't remember the two, two of the patients I saw last hour. So my fundable, fundamental point is don't lie. Don't create a chart that you can't support. Don't have all your charts for the same problem look the same. Don't chart at a level five for a level three. Yeah, Rick, you're on a roll. Let's get the next one. All right, this is um, the Accountable Care Physician Shield Law. Never even heard of such a thing. Anyway... Governor Nathan Thiel of Georgia signed into law on May 6th the first statute protecting doctors from civil liability for breaching federal health system reform requirements, and they call their law the uh, called the Provider Shield Act, which was drafted based on model legislation proposed proposed by the AMA. Oddly enough, yes, it prevents health reform metrics from being used as evidence in liability cases because now there all of there's all of these metrics that people are being asked to um, report on correct and these guys say there's a law in georgia that says you cannot use these in malpractice liability well, cases i think what they're really saying is you cannot use some statistical average which is what these things are against a specific case to say that uh well 50% of people should have gotten this within that period of time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, does not reflect the specific individual case you're working on. The measure states that payer guidelines and quality criteria under federal law shall not establish a legal basis for negligence or a standard of care for the purpose of determining medical liability. The AMA applauded hey. the passage of this law. Well, I, th- I think that it's trying to put some perspective on the fact that, first of all, you and I know this very well, a lot of the requirements and a lot of the standards which have been put forward, quite frankly, there's no scientific basis to defend it. Uh, so are we now going to find an emergency doctor guilty of not being compliant with a standard of care because he didn't do a blood gas on somebody? Or... The uh, standard is that you should see a patient within 30 minutes of their arrival. You saw this patient one hour after their uh, arrival, doctor. You deviated from the standard that was established by the CMS or whatever. Right. And therefore, this is a part of it reflects your culpability in the management of this case. Yep. Yep. It's, It's gone the wrong direction. All right. Here's a study looking at physicians. A physician's estimate of uh, pretest probability regarding head CTs and their perception of medical legal risk. Now, let's think about that for a second. They've asked doctors to say, did you get the study? Yet, yeah, why did you get the study? How much risk are you at if you didn't get the study? And it's interesting, uh, as, as we might imagine, 
doctors do a lot of strange things and they have they have a there's a paranoid delusion in the country that they're all out to get me yeah this is <clears throat> this is a kind of a sad study actually well go ahead Rick this study is entitled head multi-detector computer tomography emergency physicians overestimate the pretest probability and legal risk of significant findings so this is from Jerry Baskerville and John Derrick from the Christus Spahn Memorial Hospital Emergency Medicine Residency in Corpus Christi. Corpus Christi, yes. This is published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, volume 32,012. And Jerry and John get an A for title writing. Yes. Because it gives you the answer. You don't have to read their paper now. Yeah. But this is a single center study at a residency. So you have to really take that into consideration in terms of whether you're going to extrapolate this to the universe. This is a teaching program where they're teaching doctors to be risk-averse and to order every... Well, you know, that might be unfair. That's unfair. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I, I am just so prejudiced that these residents are being taught to be ordering machines. And then that, let's throw in some CPOE that has every test in the book right. for belly pain. Anyway, CTs were ordered by residents or faculty in 33 cases. I should say resident and faculty consensus. Correct. They, the two of them talked and they agreed and let's order this thing. Okay, that was 33 cases. Uh, CTs were ordered by emergency medicine residents, senior residents in 70 cases by EM faculty alone in 31%, 31, 31 cases, cases, and by trauma protocol that says you have no choice but ordering this CT, really drives me nuts, yeah. in four cases. Ordering physicians were asked to fill out a form indicating what the pretest probability for a significant finding was. They were also asked the perceived amount of legal risk they would have if they didn't order the CT. They were also asked if there were no liability risk, would they still order the CT, yes or no? And here are the heart-wrenching results. Drum roll. <laughs> Go. How many percent did you think had a significant finding out of this uh, hundred and some cases? Six percent had a significant finding. And they don't define what significant finding right. is. Listen, one of our goals is always to demean what a significant finding, finding is. is. That's right. Yeah. Did they have neurosurgery? Yeah. Yeah. That's Did they open the head? Yes or no. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, so that was six percent. The pretest probability of a significant result, according to the uh, orderers, they believe that 33% of the people would have a significant finding. What are they smoking? <laughs> yes, exactly. 31 in 3 was going to have a significant finding when, in fact, 6% did. What did they think about their legal risk? The idea here is that uh, they would get in potential legal trouble if they didn't order this. The legal risk, 54%, was 54%. So... They thought 33% was going to have an abnormal finding, and they thought that um, the perceived legal risk that they would be in if they didn't order thing was 54%. uh, 54%. That means less than half the cases they thought there was no legal risk at all. Come on, guys. Yeah, come on. 15% of the CTs would not have been ordered if there was no legal risk. 15%. Oh, so this is uh, 
this is kind of sad because basically what it says is the absolute findings were small. We perceived that there was going to be a lot more and we perceived the medical legal risk was going to be even more than that. And um, I think that that's a little sad. Yeah, no, it is. It's very sad that, that quite frankly, we've become gun shy to the point of unbelievability. And I, and if they, if they realized how little legal action there was with regard to that sort of thing, would they really have those views? And I don't know, because the problem is they've now been trained to order almost reflexly. And it, it, this is going to be very difficult to change, that's, Rick. That's exactly the point. I read a great um, article in the Wall Street Journal that talks about, well, when there's liability reform, will physicians actually change their practice? And I believe that the answer to that is absolutely not. Well, that was the Texas study. Right. right? The, the Texas study about, a, it's probably nine years ago now, uh, Texas had this extensive, aggressive uh, malpractice reform, such that it required that the state's constitution be changed to uh, get this reform. And they allowed, they they changed the rules for, um, you know, from gross negligence to you had to want to kill them negligence or something like that. Yeah, but in Texas, that's normal, Rick. And they allowed periodic payments and all, and they limited pain and suffering and you name it. They did the whole kit and caboodle. And seven years later, they went in and asked, uh, what are we spending now on Medicare compared to what we were before we had this huge change in malpractice uh, reform? And if anything... The average in Texas was higher than the national average. They were doing more testing than they were before. Testing than they were before. So, so all the arguments that say, if God, if we only get the uh, lawyers off our backs, we'll 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 run efficient healthcare. I mean, it didn't actually turn out that way at all. And you know, it's one of those things where I think we have generations of doctors who have been practicing in fear of malpractice and to think that the switch can be turned off immediately because now these doctors actually believe that this is good medicine correct <laughs> which is which is you know i i want to practice good medicine yeah right you it's know, insanity which was defensive medicine that was generated by your fear of malpractice for the last 30 years all right we got another letter and this time it's from one of our own faculty, Rick. Actually, uh, David uh, was here today participating in the course. David Great young is, guy. Um, Fabulous guy. Yes, he is. I just heard him for the first time. I shouldn't probably announce this at all. But he, every month, I think with his wife most of the time, Ashley, they summarize the Annals of, Internal, uh, Annals of Emergency Medicine articles on uh, the uh, podcast that is on the ASAP website. And damn it, they did a pretty good job. Yes, of course yes, no, they're real good. Hoffman and Bucata, but, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah unfortunately, you know, they, they are the wave of things to come, Rick, and we have to uh, put up with it. But David uh, writes a letter, and uh, interestingly enough, he you know, addresses he it to me. It, yeah, I was going to say, not he didn't to send you. a copy to me. Yeah, he, well, he, he gives a another tail, sign of intelligence and good taste. Greg, your expertise is desired. My department is tackling chest pain workups, 
And uh, his department, by the way, is big time. It's Mount Sinai here in New York. This is this is a big department. Big mountain. Big mountain. And there is uh, great interest in dialing back on provocative testing. We have recently discovered the yield of stress testing for an for important disease and in MIs in our chest pain unit over the past six or eight years was near zero. We are publishing these this data, and uh, he says there may be a publication date in the future. Uh, we also understand that the American Heart Association suggests that provocative testing for all chest pain patients and that the observation unit literature does not support this either. Therefore, we'd like to know about legal experiences, uh, i.e., have you seen many cases of bad outcomes after two negative enzymes and EKGs and no stress test? Well, we call them markers now, Greg. Don't yes. give your age away, will you please? Well, uh, uh, markers. I'm reading from, from Davis. Well, he, he probably, probably used that term because I'm old. Yeah, he okay? probably didn't understand it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't understand what markers meant. He says that he's spoken with uh, another friend of ours, Amomatu, about his experiences, and he was told that in a dozen cases of missed MIs that he has uh, testified in, uh, there's been a number of cases where two enzymes were negative. Markers, and, damn it. Okay, and markers <laughs> were negative, and the patient had a uh, major MI or death days to weeks later. But, he, but Amol notes that the EKGs in retrospect... Uh, did did have at least some subtle abnormality. Oh, please. So he, uh, well, I know, I know, Rick. You're just reading it. I know. You're only the, you're only the messenger. I am the, don't <laughs> slay the messenger here. And then David signs with his huge title. And, and the, yeah, his, his title is like 15 lines. I know that it's 15 lines. But I think the important question here is something that's bugging every emergency department in the country. Guy comes in. We do the two EKGs, the two markers, with a proper time interval. Nothing's positive. What do we have to do that night? What's the guidance at this point in time? What is the standard of care? Because not everybody has a chest pain unit where we can keep them for eight hours and then do a some type of study. And let them go. There is no such thing as zero risk, Rick. I think when we have two negative markers and negative EKGs, what we can say is you're probably not actively infarcting at this time. What we can never say based on that is you don't have some degree of underlying coronary disease. Well, I think the reason that you have not seen any lawsuits regarding people who were sent home with EKGs that were non-specific or normal and two two normal markers. And um, during that time, there was no increase in recurring pain or anything like that. It's because nobody does that uh, in terms of, you know, what's the likelihood of somebody sending somebody home, no further evaluation, and they have a bad outcome, and there's a lawsuit. Uh, the, the problem with David's letter uh, is he doesn't give us enough facts as to what's going to happen to that patient 
when they've done their markers and their EKGs, are they going to be getting able to get them into a clinic in the next 72 hours? Are they going to be able to follow them? Are they going to be able to provide backup? Because I think it's a much larger question. We In the database, Rick, we have at least two papers that say, if you have this situation, normal markers, normal EKGs, your chances of dying in the le- next 30 days are less than one in a thousand. Well, that may be, but it, you don't know the answer. Doctor, do I have coronary artery disease? And more specifically, I'm here in the emergency department. I had 20 minutes of chest pain that I had not had before, and it scared the crap out of me, and that's why I'm here. And was that caused by coronary artery disease? And am I going to have that again? And can I potentially have a heart attack thereafter? I don't really care about the next 30 days, to be quite frank. Right. I want to know, is this a problem that I got to, you know, work on? Well, what they they want to know is should they buy any green bananas? (laughs) Because uh, they they, they want to know if they're going to see them ripen. You cannot honestly answer my question doctor is it my heart you cannot honestly answer that question uh you can answer it this way you haven't had a heart attack you haven't had a heart attack That's, but i'm not interested it, in that. it will take further workup i mean we cannot suggest here on this program that the standard of care medically legally is that everybody gets cathed or everybody no. gets a stress test and by the way even when we do things like stress test, 64 slice scanners, got, all of those, it. they have a one-third miss rate like everybody else. Well, some do, some don't. I mean, an angiogram doesn't have a one-third miss rate. A treadmill probably has a one-third miss rate. However, what does the Heart Association say, uh, Mr. Plaintiff? Well, they have some brand new guidelines on that, Rick. Well, it's not that that new. I mean, they're at least two or three years old, at least. And basically what they say is, uh, if you cannot do, at the end of this period of observation, a test in the department that would either stress the heart or visualize the heart. Correct. The coronary artery. Yeah, you have two choices. That it is not unreasonable to send these people home. The Heart Association specifically says to have a reassessment within 72 hours. Right. Now, you know, that may be arbitrary, but the the idea here is that there is some urgency here. This is not something for uh, a visit two weeks later kind of thing. Right. And on it, I also believe, but I and I tried to look it up, but I didn't want to spend a lot of time on it to tell you the truth. I also believed, but this may be wrong, that they wanted you to send them home on aspirin, Yes. It sounds perfectly reasonable. Yep. And I think that they wanted you to send them home on beta blockers. Yes, at least one subgroup wants the beta blockers as well. The point is, in the emergency department tonight, it's, it's, it's 10 o'clock in the evening. I've done the workup on this patient. It seems to me, if you're honest with them and say, we've started the process, but we're not finished. Well, I think David's letter says, we did the process. And we found nothing. We did bajillions of stress tests, and we found nothing. And I, you have to wonder then, what is the threshold for putting people into their chest pain unit that that it must be very, very, very low risk? And everybody else, maybe they admitted those patients who had 
what other people would consider to be low risk because it's hard to conceive that they would do these stress tests and find nothing um, on people who had chest pain. Well, you know, even in those centers which uh, have, have good rigid criteria, that sort of thing, still when they stress in the department, uh, a high finding month in, in our old department would have been 10%. And and so I think that I think that David raises an interesting issue here, but we cannot we cannot have an artificial standard that says everybody gets a stress test or everybody gets a chemical challenge or everybody gets one of these things well, before they leave the department. I know people who would agree with you one hundred percent. Yes. I really do. And they're gonna say, use your clinical judgment, risk stratify the uh, markers and EKGs were normal, and uh, geez, whoever that is should be running for politics because what you've just said in those three things is, and we believe in motherhood and apple pie. However, you can't answer my question, Doctor. Was it my heart? And you can, you can circle this all you want and say, well, the chances are very small that it's your heart. But Doctor, I just had twenty minutes of chest pain. I know, but the chances are very small. Yes, I understand. Your, your heart. But, but doctor, I want to know the answer. I'm concerned. I've got little kids. I'm uh, 45. My father had a heart attack when he was 45. Uh, help me out here. Yeah. And obviously, the stress test is probably the crappiest of the tests. <laughs> it is. <laughs> you know. And you know, if, if you did a, a visualization and you found a you know, 75 or 80% narrowing, I think that you would want to say to the person, I think you got a, might have a little problem here that might need some, um, may need to be addressed in some way. I think, honestly, stress tests are a little dangerous, a little dangerous in that I recently was in the ER. I had for the first time this chest pain. I am going to duplicate the stressor that caused this by raising my pulse and raising my blood pressure so that there is a disconnect between the oxygenation of the heart and the delivery of oxygen to the heart. And if that causes chest pain, I flunked. Or if I have an ST elevation, I flunked. Well, you notice in all the uh, stress test laboratories, between every one of the stress test uh, uh, machines is a defibrillator and, and it's just in case yeah and it's there for a reason so what are we telling david here what's he going to do i'm going to tell you this is risk management monthly right this is not cardiology monthly this i understand is risk management monthly correct i think it would be extraordinarily easy to find a very credible expert to say it is the standard of care to have some kind of provocative or visualization test within 72 hours at the completion of well you know that's you know that you might be able to argue that one but this is the heart association guidelines and that doctor um what made you so confident that your patient the former mr jones did not need these things i think it would be so easy to get an expert to say that and i think frankly it would be very difficult to get an expert to say you know david's results may be correct David, and, you know, I have not really seen any huge numbers like this. And practices change over time. 
but by far the most conservative would be to do a stress test or to do a visualization test. Some people would say doing a test will just lead to more tests and those tests may be more dangerous and that your, your angiogram may be more dangerous and your stent would you, you put in may be more dangerous, et cetera, et cetera, and that there is this kind of domino effect in that. Um, but even if they said that, we do know that aggressive medical therapy would be a reasonable thing to do. Aggressive medical therapy would be, you know, high-dose statins and, you know, change of diet and get the blood pressure under control and all of these other kinds of things if you're trying to undo the effects of coronary narrowing in a medical way. What we're telling everybody out there is this ain't a decided issue. It, it, there, there are difficulties here, and the I, honest thing... The honest thing is to say, we don't know whether it's your heart or not at this point because we haven't completed the workup. But there's got to be some reasonable time interval there, Rick. I want to take the side of um, you should have done more. You didn't know the answer. And I'm not content with you don't think it's my heart. That's just not good enough. All right. Well, we'll agree to disagree on this one a little bit. David, do what you want. Listen, we're at... uh, 69 minutes here, doctor. You got any quickies that you want I to get I got some in quickies. There? You got, you, now you have, you don't have a lot of time. You got 16, uh. We'll do the best we can. You got six here's or a case. seven minutes here. Here's a case. This is a combo ER psych case. Failure to properly monitor woman with suicidal ideations. Well, they did decide that she was suicidal. They even put her in a room. They even took away her clothes they took away her purse they took away her shoes they gave they but they gave her one of those terry cloth bathrobes however which had a belt and that says uh never uh, never sold always stolen these the hospital clothes yeah 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 exactly right so she had a belt a a terry cloth belt with which she hung herself uh and so the, the hospital went down. This, uh, this is a Massachusetts settlement. I'll tell you, without knowing the case, yeah. I would be pissed if that was a relative of mine. I would have thought the duty to care would have been more aggressive in terms of leaving a freaking belt in the, the room with the patient. Well, the, the, the Massachusetts settlement on this case was $1.7 million. Justice prevailed. Yeah, ju- I well, know you're all pissed off because of hearing that, but, you know... <laughs> These people who are suicidal, this may be just a blip in time, some series of events that, you know, will pass. And it's such a shame to see a suicide that could not have been aborted. Um, uh, However, we should comment that a lot of suicidal patients, no matter what we do, they will be successful in killing I got themselves. It. I got it. You know, and, and but uh, obviously you don't want to aid and abet no. in, in that activity. No. All right. Let's do another one here. You want to do a wine here, Chief? Because uh, we are now at 71 minutes. All right. Well, we didn't get a chance to get into all the cases that I wanted month. to do. And we'll do some of them next month. So we might as well we might as well talk about a wine. We're gonna talk about a wine. Let me get it out here because this is one that I talk about the wine. What? No, talk about the wine. 
talk about the wine. You said you wanted to get it out here. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're going to do this. All right. And this is one which um, is very well thought of in the Sonoma Valley. It is Novi Family Winery. And they have a Four Mile, four mile Creek Red Table Wine. Now, you notice they use the word Red Table Wine. Does that mean that, cheap? No, it doesn't mean it's cheap. What it means is in the state of California, you cannot call a wine a varietal, a Zinfandel, a Cabernet Sauvignon, unless 51% of the grapes are that particular wine. So what they've done is they've taken something, they've taken three different kinds of uh grapes put them together they call it red table wine however the tasters who are involved with this say at 14 bucks a bottle this is good as some of the sonoma wines at 50 dollars a bottle and and for 14 dollars rick it's hard to go wrong on this thing so it's nova family winery the 2011 four mile creek red table wine and i hope you enjoy it there you go so that is the August issue of Risk Management Monthly. Send us those emails. We love them. Uh, and in fact, I got to tell you, Greg usually gets back to the people right away. I mean, we summarize them on the tapes, but I can tell you, he, he'll answer your questions and won't charge you the usual amount that he charges. He only charges with a half of Half of half, half, yeah, okay. yeah. All right, so we'll talk with you, uh, I guess, for the uh, September issue. Correct. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.